Well, good morning, church. My name is Chad Allen. I'm the next-gen pastor here at the church. Thank you. And uh, just thrilled for this opportunity to get a share with you today. Uh, we've been do going through a series, Casting Down Kings, where we've looked at pride, power, and today we are looking at pleasure, the king of pleasure, of casting down pleasure in our lives. And, oh, man, I'm, I'm just thankful for this opportunity. I really am. Uh, and, you know, when we... Look at it. If, if, you're, if pleasure is your king, then Christianity will never be anything more than a feeling. If the king of your life is pleasure, then Christianity will never be more than a feeling. It's just a feeling. And when we look at the kings in our lives, when we have a king on the throne other than God, it's clear kings always bring bondage. That's what God's people in the Old Testament wanted a king. And God said, no, 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 you don't want that. You don't want that. He wanted to be their king, but they insisted that, that they have a king. And so he says, okay, you're going to get what you asked for. And it's bondage comes with having a king. We pride ourselves as Americans in being free. Our, our national anthem says, you know, we are the, the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? We uh, love our freedom. But I'd submit to you that many people who think they're free aren't free at all, in bondage to a king. I mean, our country alone, we see nearly 20 million seeking treatment for substance abuse disorders that are in a bondage of addiction. They're not truly free. But freedom can only be found in Christ when he's king. When we look at the Bible, we see idolatry discussed over and over. It's the common theme or problem with God's people in the Bible is idolatry. And I know when I, when I say idolatry, um, the, uh, the word seems so archaic. You know, it seems like primitive people deal with that. But, but anytime you have a king other than the king of kings on your throne of your heart, you have idolatry, you have bondage, you have uh, the lack of freedom. You see, the battleground, there's a battle between two kingdoms that are fighting over your heart, and the battleground is, on, 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 is for your heart, in your heart, and surrounding your heart. Whoever you determine to be king will be the one in control of your destination, of your direction and control of your life. And it's the most important decision we ever make. And so when we hear idolatry, like I said, we think it's archaic, that that's something primitive people um, struggled with. We, we picture little statues or things like that as idolatry. Uh, but idolatry is so much more than, than what we may think of. You know, God's people, if you go to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, God's people were, were slaves in bondage uh, in Egypt for, for longer than we've been a country. For, for over 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt in bondage. And that, the second book of Exodus is all about God bringing his people out of Egypt and, and into the promised land. And the problem, though, was... After so long in Egypt, Egypt rubbed off on God's people. That he just wasn't getting his people out of Egypt. He was getting Egypt out of his people. We all have an Egypt. We all have a struggle. We all have a king on the throne of our heart. 
But God's will for his people has not changed. If you remember in the Exodus story, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And God was very clear that he wanted to be the first and only thing they worshipped. They were coming from a land of full of polytheistic gods, of many gods. And he was bringing them to a point that they would see he would be their one and only. I think marriage is the perfect illustration for this. We, we, we get this. When it comes to marriage, uh, we expect our spouse to forsake all others, right? We expect faithfulness in our marriage. Uh, let's just, this is all fictional, okay? Do not think this really happened. <laughs> let's say you go out to eat and you see at this nice restaurant, you see me sitting at a table and across from me is someone not my wife. Not Megan, we're just going to make up a name, Penelope, okay? I don't know a Penelope, I don't think she knows a Penelope, so I think we're okay. If you're named Penelope, I'm sorry, this is not about you. <laughs> All right, so Penelope and I are out having a wonderful time, and you just can't take it. You got to go, you got to go up to me and ask, what's going on? And you say, hey, Chad, what's going on? And I say, what's the big deal? I'm on a date. Well, what about Megan? Yeah, she's great. Love her. But I like Penelope too, you know? I don't have any of the frustrations that I have with Megan, you know? It, it, it's, just, it, it's just perfect, man. And you'd walk away upset, wouldn't you? Now imagine, let's say I take Penelope home after the date. I, I, meet, I want her to meet Megan. I knock on the door. Oh, Megan, I'm glad you answered. This is Penelope. You've got to meet her. I love her. Absolutely love her. I think, you know, she's just special. How would Megan respond? <laughs> All right, you, you, you don't know my wife, but you can just imagine. I'm sure she would say something like, well, Chad, I'm just honored to be a part of your life. <laughs> She's only going to say that as she pumps the shotgun and is ready to destroy me. That, that we get that in marriage and that... that we don't want to be... We want to be the one and only with our spouse, just like God wants to be exclusive with us. So if our spouse or we wouldn't settle for anything less, then why do we think God's happy with us just letting him be a part of our life? You see, he wants to be king. He wants to rule in the throne of your heart. And in those 10 commandments that, that God gives to his people in Exodus chapter 20, you remember Moses is up on the mountain and the people hear the thunder, they see the lightning, and they say, we can't go talk to him, we'll die. They send Moses. And Moses is up, you know, 40 days, receiving the, the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. And the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3, is what? You shall have no other gods. It, it, it's, it's not a, it, a both-and. It was... God knew his people were coming from a land of many gods of Egypt, and he was trying to get them out of that mindset to where he would be their only God. And that's why in the first commandment, it's clear, you shall have no other gods. The, the bondage of other kings had to be shaken away. And, and do you remember, though, what, what the Israelites were doing at the foot of the mountain? Well, while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, does anybody remember what the Israelites were doing. They were partying. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. But they were forming an idol. They were making a god. Does anybody remember the shape of that god? Calf, yeah. Calf. They were making a golden calf. And we, we, we read it, you know, 
uh, in our time frame and think, man, how silly, how stupid could these people be? But you've got to understand, you see, they were coming from Egypt. And in Egypt, there was a god named Aesop. And, and, um, and Aesop, um, he represented fertility, wealth, power. The, the god of Aesop uh, was represented by a bull, by a cow. God's people were being led into the land of Canaan. And you remember Canaan, uh, they had a god by the name of Baal there. And Baal represented wealth and fraternity and power. And do you know what Baal was represented by? A cow. So now you kind of understand the mindset of, the, of God's people when they were making this golden calf. And aren't you glad that's such an antiquated problem? Aren't you glad that nobody today ever gets frustrated in following God and turns to power or sex or pleasure? <laughs> See, those people aren't that silly as we first think. They, they're doing what we do, and we turn to other things other than God. They had turned to money, sex, and power. See, God was very clear that with him, it's you either worship me alone or not at all. Not at all. It's not a both-and type of situation when it comes with God. This is echoed over and over. We see it with Moses, then Joshua, who followed Moses in leading God's people. At Mo, uh, J J uh, J Joshua, thank you. Joshua addresses the people in Joshua 24, and he, and he tells the people in verse 14, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The message for God's people was still the same. Put away the other gods. Cast down the kings. Live for him. You fast forward a few years, you get to Elijah. Elijah and the prophet, a prophet of God to God's people. He says in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You can't do both. You're either going to follow God or you're not. You're either going to serve him faithfully or you're not. You fast forward to the New Testament. We see Jesus teaching in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will love the, uh, hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and another king. You have to make up the choice. Are you going to serve God alone, or are you going to serve something else or someone else? When, when we look at this message being repeated over and over, you see, we got to peel back the layers in every struggle that we face, every struggle that we fight in, in this realm of pleasure is actually a battleground or a battle with a false king, a battle for our hearts. Kyle Eidemann wrote a great book called God's War, and he, he says if this culture had a mantra, it would be, if it feels good, do it. If you have an itch, scratch it. An appetite, feed it. A passion, fulfill it. And we've ran with that. As a culture and society, we, we have ran with that mantra. We have made king of pleasure so big. But the problem is, remember, if, if pleasure is your king, then Christianity 
will never be anything more than a feeling. When we look at pleasure in our society, sex is the most obvious one. That, that's, it's rampant. It's, uh, the, the dollars spent in that is uh, truly astounding and shameful almost, or it is shameful. Um, it, that, that when you, you look at pleasure, you think that realm first, but then while that might be the most obvious, food would be the most literal. Food can be a king. You know, as Americans, we'll spend $110 billion on fast food this year. That's a lot. You know, two-thirds of us are overweight, and one-third is more considered morbidly obese. But weight doesn't tell all. Weight doesn't tell the full struggle. Because just because you have a high metabolism, your weight might be fine, but you still have the idolatry. You still have the pleasure, the, the, the king of, of living for that thing. You see... The problem isn't necessarily the thing, but it's the thing that we've distorted or twisted or turned and made it take the throne of our hearts that's the problem. Are you following me? That, that, it takes the place of the giver. God is the one who designed all this, gave us all this. But when those things, those blessings take his place, that's when we have the problem. Because pleasure in itself is amoral. That means it's not good or bad, it just is. And that God designed us with the ability to enjoy. This, he gave us the senses that, that can enjoy pleasure. And, and God has created things that, that, are, that, are, that are pleasurable. So it, it's clear that, that, that the pleasure isn't the problem, but it's the, the, the idolatry in our heart of putting something in place of God that is the problem. And when sensual pleasure becomes king, Christianity is nothing more than a feeling. And it'll take you, if you are driven by pleasure, it'll take you where you don't want to go. It'll cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay. Just look at the example of David. David is described as being a man after God's own heart. But when he saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, he lusted after her. He wanted her. Pleasure became his king. To where even Uriah, one of David's own mighty men, was killed in the cover-up. Man, after God's own heart, would never do that. Or look at Noah. Noah was the, is the preacher of righteousness. He was the one man that, that found favor in the eyes of the Lord, even when, even when every inclination of man's heart was set on evil. Noah found favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. And guess what? We see pleasure becoming the king in his life for a moment. He gets so plastered, he gets drunk, that he embarrasses himself in front of the family. These men would tell you they wanted to serve God. But when another king takes the place of God in our heart, pleasure will drive us to ruin and destruction. It doesn't take us anywhere we want to go. And so here we are today, and we all, we have pleasures that we enjoy. But what happens when that pleasure becomes king? What happens when someone gets in the way of you satisfying that king? Man, when someone gets in the way and stops your pleasure, what? They are going to pay, right? They're going to pay. It, James 4, if you have a Bible, go on and turn to James 4. In verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war 
within you? He starts with two questions right here. Where does all the fighting come from and the quarreling and the strife? Where does it all come from? According to James, is it not the passions, the desires, the pleasures, the sensual pleasure that we all want? Isn't that where it's coming from? Basically, someone's going to pay when the king's not getting satisfied because I want my way. And so when someone gets in the way of that, we're willing to do whatever. Peter Kreef says, He's a philosopher and says, you know, the opposite of theism is not atheism, it's idolatry. So who's your king? Or what is your king? When it's pleasure, what is that substance? What is that thing that you just can't imagine living life without? That when push comes to shove, you're going to sacrifice for that if we were really transparent and you showed those closest to you, you showed them your, your calendar and you showed them your checkbook or your finances, your, your credit card statement, you, you, you took the time and you, you showed them your internet history because you only browse for things you care about. You know what I mean? Regarding your children or things you need to know. That, that would, if we were to peel all that, to put all that together, what would it say your king is? Because when push comes to shove and something's got to go, what's the first thing to go? Well, that's not your king. What's the last thing to go? You know what I mean? When, you, when you've reached your limitations and yet you will sacrifice and get innovative and think of ways to, to expand in that area. You see, that's service to your king. That is what you're following, who you're serving. That when something's got to go, you know, you'd never give it up. Now, when we talk about this, I want to be clear, not all of these things might be bad things. You know, for instance, children can be an idol. And is it good to be a good parent? Yes, we want good parents. We love good parents. But we want parents that place God first. You see, you see, these can be good things. And if we're not careful, we'll get lost in the good thing that will lose the greatest thing. Him alone. Augustine said, the sin of idolatry isn't so much loving bad things and doing bad things. It's loving good things too much. It's loving the blessings of life ahead of the blesser. It's loving created things ahead of our creator, God. I think he nailed it. You know, when pleasure is king, Christianity is nothing more than a feeling, and it can be good things that get in the way. And feelings are strong and intense, and we love them, and, and that's what I want you to think back to when you were first fell in love. When you, when you fell in love, man, you were so excited, and the intensity of the feelings were, were incredible, right? I remember Megan and I, when we were dating 20 years ago, we... we had a long-distance relationship, you know? And so whenever we got time together, man, I was so excited. She entered the room, and she had my full attention because that time was so valuable. Now, fast forward 20 years, and things have changed. For her, not for me. <laughs> All for her. But things have changed, right? Husbands, be careful, amening. This will get you in trouble. That, that the feeling intensity, it's, it's, it's there, but it's different now. It's different because I'm different. 
And that when she's gone, I, I don't just look forward to being with her. I want to be with her all the time that I can. It, but it's, it, it's different now because God's made us one. And, and that when she's gone, I, I feel like part of me is missing because God has made us one. And, and the same is true for those that serve him as king, that we have been joined in spirit and are now one. Whenever, whenever we put anything in the place of God, consequences are going to come and follow. But let's just peel back. Let me push a little more. <clears throat> How do you relax? It's been a long, hard day. What do you do? It, some of us, I know, we, we love to go and sit on our couch, turn on the TV, and just veg. We just want to shut off all the sounds and all, all that we've been hearing all day and not deal with it. We want to go to the fridge, get some ice cream, get some sugary something, and get, get it on, right? That's, some of you are honest, I guess, but, <laughs> that, but that's what we want to unwind. And so we have these comfort foods, which really what they do to our body should be discomfort foods. But anyway, we have these comfort foods. And God is saying, he wants to be our comforter. That's how he describes himself in the Bible. Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, God wants to be the one we turn to at the end of the day. Not the fridge. But to him, he wants to be our comforter. He wants to give us satisfaction. He wants to be our all in all, not some other thing. But some of God's biggest blessings have become God's biggest competition. And the gifts that he's given us to bless us with, we've turned to them the gifts instead of the giver. And we ask for God to continue to bless, and sometimes God says no. No, I, why would he want to bless something that is taking us away from him, that is stealing the affections of our heart? You know, parents, we love to give good gifts to our children. We, we love to spoil them rotten when we can. You know, Christmas comes, and let's just say you've had a, 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 your, your son or daughter has been begging, begging for a phone. And that you finally wear down and you finally say, okay, and you give it to them as a present. And man, what's their reaction? They are all over you, right? They're hugging you and love you, love you, love you. Thank you, thank you, a thousand thank yous. Yes. And they go off with their phone. And they go to their room. What do they do? Well, they're texting their friends. They're on the phone. You swing by the door, peek in, and say, hey, you want to go play some basketball in the backyard? No, I, I don't have time. I'm talking with my friends. A couple days go by. You say, hey, you want to go watch a movie? No, I don't have time. I'm texting with my friends. They keep putting you off because they found other connections that they seem to value more. Those days turn into weeks, and those weeks into months. And all of a sudden, what started as a blessing became a curse. You see, that's what it is when we have idolatry in our lives with God. Some of the biggest blessings, we know that everything good in life is a gift from him, but it's supposed to take us closer to him, not farther away. And so we chase after pleasure. 
and we chase hard. But there's this hedonistic paradox of the harder we chase after pleasure, the, the least likely we are to catch it. Addiction, it works like this. It's progressive. That, that it'll take more and more of whatever the substance is to get that same high, to get your same fix. That, that's the way it works, is that, that as we pursue pleasure as our king, we find less and less satisfaction. Instead, we find that the king becomes a tyrant. And then the tyrant becomes a slave master. But James goes on in verse 2, he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, now I know this is a little extreme here, but, but James is saying, you know, when pleasure is what you're striving for, what, and you, someone gets in the way, you don't have what you want, you murder. Now, I, I, I know for most of us, that's, that's an exaggeration, a hyperbole, but, but, but here, we maybe did not commit the act physically, but we have mentally or in our heart. That, that when people get in the way, We'll take them out however we have to. Instead of viewing people through the lens that God sees, instead of seeing their infinite worth in his eyes, we see competition. We see something that's got to go. We covet. We want something so badly that we're willing to do whatever it takes to get it, and we want to be the only one that has it. And that will drive us to destruction, destruction of others and even ourselves as we chase after it. It will destroy the relationships around it. You see, pleasure will never show you where it's really leading you to go when it's king of your life. It'll never show you the road where the destination is, but it tries to get you to focus on just the moment, the moment of pleasure. But we all know that the green grass turns brown. Now, while the grass may look greener on the other side, it eventually will turn brown. Pleasure... While it never shows us where it'll go, the results are always the same. Pain and destruction. This is why we have to be so careful what we think. That in realms of spiritual warfare, you know, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That, you know, we don't wage war as the world does, man. Our war, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We have to be so careful what we think, because what we think is going to shape our attitudes, our patterns of thinking. It's going to shape our hearts. It's going to shape and form our values. And those values are going to form and shape our actions. It starts as a thought, it starts as a desire, but it goes, it progresses, and gets stronger over time. We have to pay attention to this because it will shape our worship. Our thoughts will shape our hearts, and our values, our actions, and our worship. It's mind-blowing to me. Psychologists and scientists have shared and learned so many insights about our brain and its ability. It's so unique that... It's just truly astounding, and uh, this doesn't do justice. You know, the, the neuroplasticity of the brain, its ability to rewire to form new neuronal connections and shortcuts is truly amazing. And that what, what they're saying is that basically you keep thinking a thought over and over, your brain is finding shortcuts and creating new roads, new paths to get there quicker. 
That's crazy. Let, let me illustrate it like this. When, when I was growing up, my cousin Chris and I used to have dirt bikes. And oh man, we loved to ride. My grandfather had a farm in southern Indiana, and we would ride all day, every day. He had his little 80 Yamaha, I had my 80 Kawasaki, and man, we would tear it up. And, and, and Pap, now I'm looking back, I'm like, Pap put up with a lot. That, that you know, he would let us ride through the alfalfa fields, and man, we would ride the same path every day, all day, that we would run, wear down the path with our dirt bikes to where there wasn't any alfalfa, but there was just ground. See, your brain is doing the same thing. That your thoughts, as you continue to dwell and think on them, you are forming and blazing a trail in your mind. See, that's where the king of pleasure is such a big deal, because your brain is rewiring itself around this. Uh, we see people wanting, wanting happiness, and so their brains are literally hijacked by drugs or some substance that, 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 that it totally messes everything up. But what about entertainment? You know, thinking these same thoughts. What about entertainment? And, and, and you know, let's look, a 15-year-old video gamer, and I'm going to lose street cred, I'm sorry, guys, but uh, you look at a gamer, man, that you don't have a heroin addict putting a needle to their arm and getting a high, but what do you have? You have the same telltale signs of the teenager pulling away, withdrawal from his family, withdrawal from his friends, lying about it, doing whatever you can just to get a few more minutes of gaming. See, that's why entertainment's not a bad thing. Don't walk out of here and say, Chad's against pleasure, he's against entertainment. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we've got to be so careful about this because it's so easy for it to slip in and become destructive in our life, for it to become the king when our lives are driven by it. That God loves pleasure. God loves entertainment. I, I mean, when you look at creation... There's no doubt about it. He could have made everything just bland and a functional space for us to live in, right? But no, what did he do? Man, he's giving it color and pizzazz, right? Just, just uh, look at it, you know? Uh, I think donuts are proof that God loves us, right? <laughs> that, that these are good things, that you look at beautiful mountaintops and a sunset, just how gorgeous, breathtaking it can be, the vastness of the ocean, all of these things, man, God, God made, you know, fun and entertainment part of it. Why is it so fun to play with a puppy, right? Or, or to watch little kittens play. Man, it's a blast, right? Because God made it that way. Why do we have all these senses and all? It's God gave us to enjoy life. And even Jesus' teaching, he wasn't a boring teacher. Man, he used parables to help us understand, but they were entertaining, John the Baptist, the same, he was so entertaining in his preaching, even Herod liked to listen to him. You see, God's not against entertainment. He's against his children choosing entertainment over him. God's not a cosmic killjoy, but he's a loving father who cannot stand for his children to choose a joy that kills you know, one of the hardest parts about, about being a pastor is seeing people choose the wrong king. It's hard to watch when you, when you know they're making this choice and they're choosing something that is going to destroy them something that is going to end up 
leaving them with nothing. It's hard to watch. But so many of us do. We want that pleasure. We want that feeling, that euphoria, and so we'll chase after it, and man, we'll chase hard. I think of Solomon. If you remember King Solomon, you know, the wisest guy to ever walk the face of the planet, except, uh, except for Jesus, right? That, that he, he chased pleasure hard. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We don't have time to go through it this morning, but hear me out. Read it. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. Are you going to read it? Seriously, are you going to read? All right, thank you, because here's what you're going to see is Solomon, man, he chased after pleasure, and he chased hard. That when it came to partying, man, he did it. He partied it up. He made himself happy with alcohol, but he found it didn't bring satisfaction. You see, he partied it up, he lived it up, and he had resources beyond what we can imagine. That when I say he was seeking pleasure hard, man, he really went after it. That, that I, I've always thought, if I ever become so wealthy that I can spend money on whatever I want and not care, then what I would love is for someone to follow me around and beatbox everywhere I go. Someone to help me with my swagger, you know? Set the tone when I enter a room. Solomon had that. That's how hard he was going after pleasure. He had a whole choir, and of course, he had his harem. You know, 300 wives, 700 concubines, that's 1,000 women. It'd take almost three years just to spend one day with each. I, I know I thought he was smart too, but I guess... No, he was chasing pleasure. He was chasing pleasure. And what does he say? He sums it up like this, that it was just a, a chasing after the wind. Have you ever chased the wind? Just try it. When you walk out of here... Not, not right now, but when you walk, when we're done, walk out and chase the wind. What will you have? Nothing. You see, that's what the kings of pleasure leave us with. Nothing. And what do they do for us? Not enough. Not enough to ever satisfy. You, you know, when Ernie asked me to preach this sermon, I said, for real? You sure? Because he knew my story. If anyone's got experience in doing the wrong thing, it's me. For years, I chased the king of pleasure, and mine was a bottle of alcohol. That was my battleground that I could not win. And that I, man, I was just so hopeless. It was just sad that I was in bondage. I heard everyone around me, my friends, my family, everyone. I was a mess. I mean, bigger than what I am today. I was a real mess. It was bad. It was just sad. And I, and I was hopeless. I really had given up hope. I remember being in church and hearing someone say how God delivered them from their alcoholism. And I thought, man, you don't have what I have because there's no getting out of this. I tried treatment a couple times. And man, I, I ended up worse than what I started. It was bad. Man, God is so good. He showed up when I had no hope. And I want to be clear, it's all him. It is not me. 
surrender. That's the only thing I did. It's been over three years now since I bowed to the king that I bowed to for over 15 years. I say that, please. It's not pride. It's this. I know there are some in this room that have a king of pleasure, that are in bondage right now to a king, and you think there's no way out. Don't believe that lie. Man, don't believe that lie. See, I love this church. You know why? Because I came here. I was a mess. I was a mess, and they, you knew, and you loved me. You knew, and you I mean, you made me a pastor. I get to preach. What? See, if you're wearing a mask right now, take it off because you are around, you are surrounded by the most loving and forgiving people around. That you don't have to hide that here because we all know what it's like to need Jesus, to need him, to need forgiveness. You see, when you, when you get that need, when you see your need for a savior, you see your need for Jesus, Christianity will never be just a feeling. It'll always be more. And so how do we cast down these kings? We cast down these kings by replacing them, not removing them, replacing them with the king of kings that gives us a purpose to live for, a purpose that says, no matter what comes, we know God is in control and that he is going to satisfy us because everything else we've looked to, everything else we have tried have left us wanting, but he alone can satisfy. And when you see you need Jesus, man, you see Christianity will never be just a feeling. It'll always be more. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we... We repent. God, we ask that you would take what we can offer in complete surrender. Father, that you would become our king. And the entire church prays this in Jesus' name and says, Amen. Love you, church.